Well, have you ever been lost before? Like really lost? Like not the kind of lost where she told you to stop and ask for directions, but you refuse because you know where you're going kind of lost. Not that I've ever experienced that. But the real lost, like you're scared. Your heart starts racing, your palms get sweaty, and in this moment you realize that if someone doesn't come find you, you can't find your way out. You don't know where to go. I remember when I was young, probably seven or eight years old, my family was mountain biking on a trail that we rode quite regularly. And right near the end of the trail, you came around a corner and there was a T, an intersection, to which you just took a quick right and it was less than a quarter of a mile till the end. And I came around that corner and I, I looked up at the intersection and looked to see which way my family had went and I didn't see anyone. And I rolled up and even though I had likely ridden that trail dozens of times, I rolled up and I looked at the sign and to a seven-year-old it made no sense. And suddenly the trees seemed really tall. And the forest seemed like the biggest forest in the world. And my heart started racing as I cried out, Mom, Dad, Dad, Dad Mom, Dad. I didn't hear anything. I was, I was lost. And what seemed like hours, it was probably two minutes, my dad came riding around the corner. They were literally about two corners away waiting for me at the top of the next hill. But in that moment when I was lost, I felt alone. I felt helpless. I felt like I needed someone to come help me because I couldn't save myself. See, the reality is that we are all born into this world lost. Now, we may not be physically lost. You hopefully know where you are right now. You're in Chicago at the Moody Church in case you didn't. But we're all born spiritually lost according to Scripture. See, according to the Bible, we are all born lost helplessly lost in our sin, and our only hope is being found by God. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, would you open them, please, to the book of Luke chapter 15. The book of Luke chapter 15, as we explore this idea, the next two weeks of lost and being found by God. And we're going to look the next two weeks at three parables which form one unit. And this morning we're going to look at the shorter and the first two of those parables. These three parables are all held together by three key words that appear in each of the three parables. The, the words are lost, found, and rejoicing. This morning we're going to see it in the two. And then if you join us next week, um, which we hope you can, you'll see it next week as well. And as we do, we're going to discover this morning, as we look at these two parables in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10, we're going to look at three realities of salvation this morning. Three realities of salvation. So Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1, says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now Jesus, this sets up the setting to which Jesus tells these parables to. And on this, you kind of have the polar ends, the extreme opposites on the religious spectrum of the day. On one side, you have the first group here that is, that is told that they're the, the, the sinners and the tax collectors. They're right at the beginning. And they're, they're kind of on the far irreligious side. 
the tax collectors were despised and looked down upon. These were sinners who didn't make their life around revolving the righteousness of God. And on the other side, you have the, the Pharisees and the scribes, who that was their life. They were the religious elite of the day. So Jesus isn't presenting these parables like this normal kind of middle-class, average, godly audience. It's the extreme opposites. You have the sinners and the tax collectors and the Pharisees. And he says this, starting in verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He starts off this parable by saying this phrase, What man? What man? Meaning that the, the actions of this shepherd aren't some heroic, extraordinary actions, but what they would expect. What would be common of any person in that day? See, what would happen is whether they were brought into a pen or whether they were out in the open country to spend the night, the shepherd at the end of the day would have gone one by one and counted each of the sheep. And at one point, he would have realized that he was one short. And he didn't go, well, 99% still an A. That's all good. His heart breaks for the one that is not here. And it says that he leaves them in the open country. What he's saying here, it's not that he leaves them in great danger of attack. They would have understood that in a flock of a hundred sheep, there would have definitely been more than one uh, shepherd there. And so he doesn't leave and endanger the other 99. The point is, the shepherd's heart is for that one that's not there. The shepherd's heart is for the one that has, that has gone astray. And so he goes out looking. He goes out and searching after this sheep until he finds it. Lays it on his shoulders. Showing the tender care and compassion that he had for the shepherd. And he brings it back to the flock. And notice when he returns. He doesn't return and reprimand the sheep. And scold it. But what does he do? He rejoices. And he is so overwhelmed with joy that he can't just rejoice by himself. He has to invite his friends and everyone together to, to his neighbors and say, rejoice with me. He throws a party over this lost sheep that he has gone out and found. The second parable starts in verse 8. It says this, Or what woman, having ten silver coins... If she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents." Again, in Jesus' introduction to the parable by saying, what woman? 
This isn't an extraordinary action. This would be the normal behavior of a woman who found herself in that setting, the normal response to the situation. And in this parable, we we see here a woman who has 10 coins. Now, Jesus doesn't explain what these 10 coins are, but culturally, we we have a pretty good um, understanding of what it probably was referring to. Most likely, this was an older woman, likely a widow, and these 10 coins were her life savings. This was her safety net. She lived in a very low area. She wasn't a higher class person. And these 10 coins meant everything to her. Each coin probably represented about one day's worth of wages. And suddenly she realizes that one of these coins is lost. And so she starts searching. And in that time, she would have lived in a house uh, where the only light that came in was through the door. There's no windows in her house. And so she lights a lamp, and she starts searching, and she doesn't find it. And so she starts sweeping the floor. She would have had a dirt-floored hut. And she starts sweeping the floor, looking for this coin, until she finally, after searching diligently, she finds it. And again, just like the shepherd, what does she do? She calls together her friends and her neighbors and says, rejoice with me for this lost coin has been found. In these two parables, we see here three realities of salvation this morning. Three realities of salvation. You have an outline um, in your bulletin. The first reality shows us God's initiative. These parables, the the first reality of salvation for these two parables shows us God's initiative. These parables show us that our God is a seeking God. Our God is a God who goes out after what is lost and he goes and he finds what is lost. And see, remember here he's talking both to to the, the, the sinners and tax collectors but also to the Pharisees. The Pharisees would not have thought about God in these terms. They would have thought about God very differently. This would have been a radical idea to them. For the Pharisees, if you wanted a relationship with God, it was simple. You worked hard. You kept every commandment. Not only did you keep the commandments, you went above and beyond and kept the commandments to make sure you didn't break the commandments. And you worked hard, and if you wanted a relationship with God, then you would do everything in your power to make it happen. But Jesus says that's not who God is. God is a seeking God who goes out after us. And Jesus here isn't teaching something new. He's teaching the kind of God that he's always been throughout all of Scripture. And in fact, in even using the same reference and metaphor here as a shepherd, as the parable does, he's referencing back to to the Old Testament use of God being a God who goes out and seeks after his people. It says in Ezekiel chapter 34, this is verse 11 and 12, it says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And the people in Ezekiel's day would have said, well, how is God going to do this? How will God seek out people to go and find them and bring them back to himself? And Ezekiel answers just a few verses later. 
We see here, he says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Now, there is something here that the people who would receive this letter from Ezekiel realized that we might not have surface reading of it. Of course, it's talking here about David. If you're familiar with scripture, it's referencing King David, the king of Israel. Now, here's the thing. By the time Ezekiel writes, King David's been dead for 600 years. He's not talking about the King David coming resurrected and coming back to life. So what is he talking about? He's talking about the promise that was given to David that from his line would ultimately come the Messiah. This passage points to the one who will go out and seek after his people and bring them to God as being none other than the fulfillment of the line of David, the man that we know is our God, Jesus Christ. Which is why in the book of John, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. Which is why in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, he says, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is the method that God has used to go out and to seek after the lost people of the world. See, when God seeks after us, he doesn't just give a cursory look, a quick glance, and hope that he finds us. Now look at both of these parables. It says for, for the shepherd that he went out and he was going to look until he found the sheep. For the shepherd, when he set out that night, it wasn't, hey, I got five minutes. And if the five minutes are up, too bad. But you get the attitude, it didn't matter if it took five minutes, five hours, or days. He was going to find that sheep. For the woman, we're told that she seeks diligently. She works hard in looking after and she won't give up in finding the lost thing. So it is with God that when he seeks after us, he pursues the lost people of our world diligently and he won't just give a cursory glance, but he goes after that which is lost. Well, favorite childhood game of mine which very likely most, if not all of us in here, played growing up, was a very simple game called hide-and-seek. A very simple game called hide-and-seek. And perhaps some of you here today were very good when you were young at finding creative spots to hide. And so when someone was playing hide-and-seek with you, it took a long time. But for others of us, hide-and-seek wasn't our game. We weren't so good at it. And with the great thing called the internet, we get to see visual evidence that we're not alone, that we're not the only people who aren't great at playing hide and seek. And so, for instance, you have kids who think it's a great idea to hide behind their stuffed alligator because the stuffed alligator is always standing up on its tail in its room, and so you can never be found behind it. This one's good. Just don't pick a clear bin next time, and it might actually work. Or this one, I've seen hiding behind the couch. I've seen hiding under the couch. I don't think the couch cushions quite work as well. It's so close. So close. One day this kid's going to learn about shadows and it's going to be like, oh, that's, that's, how, that's how they found me. I have no idea when hiding under a doormat is going to work well. And my personal favorite is this one. Um, if you can't see me... 
I can't see you. So we're both going to hide behind the curtains and neither of us are going to be seen by the other person. See, sometimes if you were like me as a kid playing a game of hide and seek, if after a few minutes it wasn't that obvious, you just stopped playing. Right? You said, all right, come out. Game's over. If God seeks after us, he doesn't call game over. God is a seeking God. And it doesn't matter if it takes him five seconds or 50 years or more. He continues to pursue after us. He's a God who seeks after his people. It's why for Christians who are here today, we realize We understand that when we've turned our lives around to God, we realize that all along, he was seeking after us. It's not we who were seeking after him, but indeed he was out seeking after us. God is a seeking God, which is good news because we are all born into this world lost, helplessly lost, and our only hope is in being found by God. The first reality is it shows us God's initiative. The second reality in this passage is it shows us humanity's value. It shows us humanity's value that God would go and seek after us. See, the only reason that you seek after something is if it's worth finding. The only reason you spend time looking for something is if you actually value what it is you're looking after. Just think about the things that you likely have searched for in your house the last week or month. Um, You go to leave for work or for church in the morning. Where are the keys? Where are the keys? And you search through all your pockets. And this time of year, it could be like 19 different coats and your pants. And you're like, where are the keys? Why do you need the keys? Because the keys are valuable. You can't get locked the house. You can't start the car. You can't go anywhere without the keys. How about your wallet? Oh, where's my wallet? Did I leave it at the restaurant? Did my kids take it? Where's my wallet? Where did I put it? Or how about your glasses? Where you look all over the house and of course, they're on top of your head. And after two hours, you finally look in the mirror and you realize, oh, that's where they are. I've been wearing them all this time. But none of us this morning, as we were getting ready to head here to church, put our hands in our pockets and were suddenly like, where's that penny that I had in my jeans yesterday? Who moved that penny out of my coat pocket? Why? Because a penny's not valuable. A penny in our world is not a big deal. None of us value pennies like how we would those other things. See, these parables remind us of the intrinsic value that all people have, not just the religious or the privileged, but of every single person. These parables when Jesus tells them, are an indictment on the Pharisees, especially by referencing back to God being a shepherd. In the passage that we read in Ezekiel chapter 34, that originally was written as an indictment on the religious leaders of that day, that rather than care for everyone, they just cared about the privileged and elite in their society, and they pushed other people to the margins. It's why at the beginning, They grumbled about Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors. Why would he stoop so low? What is he doing? And even in the parables that he says, to use an image like a shepherd and a woman who's poor pushes against the Pharisees' conception of value. 
Because for them, they thought of themselves as far more important than a shepherd or a widow. They were certainly more important than that in their own minds. See, God sees us as having great value, which is why he seeks after us. Because we all relentlessly seek after the things in our lives that have great value. Almost 15 years ago, uh, one of the greatest um, movies, especially uh, animated movies of all time, came out. And that's the movie Finding Nemo. The movie Finding Nemo. And at the beginning of Finding Nemo, if you're a little rusty and, and forget it, it, it's on two clownfish named Marlin and Coral who are looking down at their brand new nest, their new home, admiring the, the huge stack of eggs that will soon hatch and become their children. The next scene suddenly comes and a barracuda attacks the nest. Marlin tries to fight for his family, is knocked unconscious, and we wake up, and he wakes up, excuse me, and suddenly everyone's gone. Coral's gone, all the eggs are gone, and in his despair he swims around looking and he finds one egg that's left that hatches into his son, Nemo. And Finding Nemo shows this kind of lo loving, almost overbearing and protective love that the dad, Marlin, has for his son, Nemo. And of course, Nemo, being an adventurous young, um, young kid, eventually ventures off too far and is caught and taken captive and put in a tank. And most of the movie is Marlin's relentless efforts to find Nemo. He goes through all sorts of obstacles to find Nemo. Now, why does he care that much about a clownfish? Why does he care so much? Because this fish is of great value to him. Because it's his son. It's his only son. And he would stop at no end to go after, seeking after him. The reason God seeks after you is you're worth seeking after do you see yourself today as valuable as God sees you? Do you see yourself as valuable as God sees you? Because the reality is this. You matter to God. Each and every one of us, you matter to God. There's no asterisk after this phrase that says, if you've given enough money to church this year, if you've been righteous enough with your life recently. There's no fine print underneath here like you would have on a commercial saying all the terms and regulations of this phrase applying to you. This phrase is true, that you matter to God. God values you, and that's why he seeks after you to find you. And so many people in our world today, undoubtedly so many of us, don't understand the value that God has placed on our lives. It's why we see so many things rising in our world. I don't know if you realize this or not, but for teenage suicide amongst girls has doubled in the last 10 years. They don't see themselves as God sees them. So many people struggle with their value and self-worth, placing it on external things rather than seeing themselves as valuable because God sees us as valuable. You matter to God. The other question is this. Do we see others as valuable as God sees them? 
Perhaps you do understand the value that you have before God. But do you see other people in your life as valuable as God sees them? Because the Pharisees didn't. They saw other people as second class, as outcasts, as not as important than they are. They were so inward focused on themselves and their morality that they lost the vision and the mission of God to this world. See, there's nothing wrong. Like the Pharisees were concerned about their own righteousness. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be a righteous person and pleasing God. But the tendency at times can be to be so consumed with ourselves that we forget and lose sight of the people around us. And I pray that we would start to have a value for the lost people around us, that we would value them as much as our God values them. The Pharisees missed it. Let's hope that we don't miss it, that the people around us are lost, helplessly lost, and their only hope is being found by God. The first reality is God's initiative. The second is humanity's value. And the third reality of salvation in this passage this morning is heavenly rejoicing. The third reality of salvation that we see in this passage is heavenly rejoicing. Our God is not just a seeking God, a God who values us, but our God is a rejoicing God. God doesn't go to a party. He throws the party and invites all of heaven to come and join with him. Now, what occasion is this? It's the lost being found. And in both of these texts, we're told here this key word, the last word of each of these parables. What occasion causes God such great joy that he cannot help but throw a party and invite all of heaven in with? It's this word called repentance. Repentance which we sung about this morning, but so often we fail to practice in our lives. Too many people are good at apologizing for sin, not ever repenting of sin. So if this brings God such great joy, what is repentance? If this is what God throws the huge party for, what is repentance? Well, I've been greatly helped um, by an author, Bruce Demarest, in his book, Cross and Salvation, talks about three essentials to repentance. Three essentials to repentance. And he says this, the first, for real repentance to take place, first, it must be intellectual. You must understand that you are a sinner. You must understand that you have wronged a holy God. See, I don't think in this parable, I don't think in this passage, the Pharisees had an intellectual understanding of their sin. It's why they viewed themselves as better than others. It's why in Luke chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus says this, Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now we may read this and be like, wait, so, so some people don't need repentance? What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that one person understands their need for repentance, 99 don't. I don't know if they used air quotes 2,000 years ago, but I imagine Jesus saying, over one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous people who don't think they need repentance. Or he's looking probably right at the Pharisees and he'd be saying, over 99 self-righteous people who need no repentance because they have not understood their sin. So if we're going to repent from our sin, we first must have an intellectual understanding that we have sinned and wronged a holy God. 
The second essential is real, remente- real repentance Excuse me, is emotional. There's an emotional component to it. It doesn't mean you have to cry, guys. Don't worry, all right? It doesn't mean you have to cry. But what it does mean is that repentance is real. We must feel the weight of our sin. We must feel the weight of what our sin cost God, of what our sin has done to us. And if we don't feel the weight of our sin, we will never do the third essential of repentance, which is a volitional component. It's not only an understanding of sin. It's not only feeling the weight of our sin, but third, there's a volitional component, meaning that we turn and we live differently. So repentance is often an easy definition of it is a 180 degree turn in our lives. A complete turn from where we once lived to now walking towards God. This doesn't mean a religious perfectionism. It doesn't mean that we will never sin. But it means that our life is now not headed towards sin, but instead is headed after God. God rejoices over the lost coming home. He rejoices over sinners repenting before him. Well, like many of you, this past week, I was able to to spend some time with family. I was here in Chicago with my, um, my family here for Christmas Day, and then I got to travel up to Michigan for a few days this week, um, because if we don't have enough cold and snow here, why not just triple it and go to where it's even colder and more snow? But I got to go see my two nieces. And I made the decision when, when my first niece was born, she's a little over two years old now, so I decided when she was born that I was going to be the favorite uncle, and I am succeeding. I may be her only uncle, but that doesn't matter. I am her favorite uncle. Now, since I love my niece, I love to do things that bring my niece great joy. And there's one particular thing that I try and do as often and every time that I am up visiting with them that I know brings my niece great joy. See, not very far from where she lives is an ice cream shop. This ice cream shop is not just any ice cream shop, but it's an ice cream shop called Moomers. And Moomers has been voted by USA Today as the best ice cream shop in America. So every chance that I get, I take my niece to Moomers. Because what two-year-old doesn't get great joy out of a sugar high of delicious ice cream? So every chance I get, I take her to Moomers, and we have ice cream together, and sometime I'll bring along her mom and dad. They can come too. But I especially want to take my niece and bring her great joy. See, I knew I was doing something right when this summer her parents told her, hey, Uncle Michael's coming to visit. And she had a big smile on her face, and she looked at him, and she said, Moomers? (laughs) I knew I was doing something right. See, since I love my niece... I want to do things that will bring her great joy. Not to mention the fact that I can give her back to her parents when the sugar buzz goes down. But if we love someone, our lives are about bringing them great joy. The people in your life, your spouse, your kids, your grandkids, you want to bring them great joy. And if you love them, you love to do things that bring them great joy. What brings God great joy? It's when the lost are found. 
It's when sinners repent and come home. My friends, if we love God, sharing our faith is not just an optional thing of our lives. But if it brings God such great joy that he can't just contain it himself, but he has to invite all of heaven to join in with him, how can we not make our lives about that as well? You see, when God goes and seeks after the lost in our world, he very rarely does it on his own. What he often does is he uses people, not perfect people, but just regular people like you and me. And he uses us to reach the lost people in our world and to bring them to him. If we love God, we should want to see him be brought great joy And this passage is clear that nothing brings God joy like loss coming home. And so may that be our heartbeat. May that be the goal of our life, to participate with God in bringing lost people back to their God. Well, it's New Year's Eve today, and I would guess that many of us have thought about New Year's resolutions for this year. And if you're like most Americans probably too that maybe are on your list is you want to eat better and exercise more. And those are good things. And we should think back and reflect on this past year and where we can grow into this new year. Can I challenge you to resolve in 2018 to make your life about bringing God the greatest joy? Can I challenge you in 2018 to make your life about seeing other people in your life, the lost people in your life, to start to see them as valuable as our God sees them? Can I challenge you to make your life about bringing God such great joy that you will do anything you can in prayer, in reaching out and sharing your faith to reach the lost people around you, people like your friends, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, people who are lost, helplessly lost, and their only hope is in being found by God. Perhaps you're here this morning and you realize that you're lost, that you don't know God. God is seeking after you today. Repentance can happen today. Would you today repent of your sin, understand you've offended a holy God, feel the weight of it, and turn from your sin towards the God who's already paid the punishment and is running after you. You see, each and every one of us are born into this world lost, helplessly lost, and our only hope is in being found by God. God, we thank you that you are a God who seeks and who saves the lost. God, we thank you that for so many of us here today, we rejoice in our salvation because you sought after us for so long. You were so kind and so loving. God, may your kindness and love bring more to repentance today, here. God, for those of us who know you, may our lives 
revolve around bringing you the greatest joy possible by participating with you in your mission to reach the lost people of this world with the love of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that we are lost, but you seek after us and you find us. Amen.